Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege of serving you, of coming alongside you and uh, ministering to these guys week in and week out. And I count it a privilege and an honor to do so. And I pray that this morning as we unpack your word that um, you would speak to us um, in, a, in a mighty way, in a great way, that we would see you, hear from you, understand what an incredible privilege we have to have you dwelling in us individually and also as the body of Christ. So Father, open our eyes to see the reality of that and help us to live in it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So I wanna start with the last chapter, the last few verses of chapter 40 of the book of Exodus. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night, in the, night of all the, house of, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So that's how the book ends. And what we're gonna do this morning is something pretty interesting. I think it's interesting. I've had a fun time doing it. Um, I just hope it makes sense. Um, we're gonna cover a lot of territory and we're literally gonna go from Genesis to Revelation because what we see happening in these closing chapters of the book of Exodus is pretty significant because it, it's literally a picture, a glimpse back of Eden. And um, I've given you a lot of illustrations and charts that I've created that hopefully will help you understand this more but there is a, a pattern that we see repeated in scripture all the way from Genesis to the book of Exodus, and it's gonna carry us into the New Testament and then all the way to the book of Revelation. And that's what I wanna look at today. It's all about the presence of God, that God, the God of the universe has chosen to dwell among us. And so it begins literally in the beginning. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens, the universe, the stars, the sun, the moon, everything, all the galaxies, everything that we can see with the human eye, with telescopes, through the help of spacecrafts, whatever we can see and what's beyond that, God created it all. But he also created the earth. We studied that when we did the book of Genesis, the first two chapters of God creating the heavens and the earth. And then God said, in the midst of all that, let there be what? Light. That's the first thing he created was light. And in the midst of all that, he created this place called the earth. And he planted on that ball, that blue ball in which we live, he planted a place, a very specific place. We don't know exactly where it is. I tend to think Eden was somewhere where Israel is. Others think it's way to the east and somewhere in Mesopotamia. Um, but what we do know is that in that place called Eden, he planted a garden. And in that garden, he put a tree. Actually, he put two, two trees, right? But one of the trees is very specific. And then he puts a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And what does he do? He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He gives this man and woman a mandate. And, and really what you see here is, is there's a picture in which Eden was a kind of tabernacle. It was a, a temple in which God came to dwell on earth with this man and woman who were basically his priests. 
They were his representatives and their job was to do what? They were to fill the earth. They were to honor him through their actions. And yet we know something happened. They, they fell, sin entered into the scene. And after that moment, when they listened to the lie of the enemy and when they bought into the lie that they could be autonomous, they could be the masters of their own fate, something happened. The, the, the relationship between them and God was broken. And it says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This verse speaks volumes because up until this point, up until the point when they sinned, they had a relationship with God that was unbroken. It was, they got to hang out with God Almighty. They got to talk with him, fellowship with him because he had literally come to earth. He had created this place, place on earth called Eden and then he placed the garden and then he came and dwelled with them. And because of that, they had these things, access to God. Think about it. That man, that woman had direct, unbroken access to God Almighty, 24-7. They got to commune with him on a regular basis. They had a sense of purpose. What was their purpose? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, care for this garden, tend for it, tend over it. The, the mandates he gave them all have, in the Hebrew, manifestations of priesthood, priestly duties, care for it, tend it. Make sure it stays pristine the way I've created it. And then he supplied all their needs, right? I've given you every tree of the garden to eat, but one. Don't eat of that tree. And that's the very tree they ate of. One of the trees he gave them was the tree of life. And that tree gave them eternal life. In other words, as long as they stayed in fellowship with God, as long as they remained in the garden, doing what God had called them to do, they had access to that tree of life and they could eat of the fruit of that tree and have eternal life, but they chose to eat of a different tree. They chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so I've, I've created this chart and it's on the last page of your handout and we're gonna go back and forth looking at it, but... <laughs> What I wanna show you is something that's jumped out at me in studying this. And it really began when I was doing the study of Genesis and then I worked my way through Exodus and then I've worked my way through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And, and I also see this in the book of Hebrews, this idea that God, the God of the universe came to earth, dwelled in a place called Eden, the Garden of Eden to be specific. And he gave them this incredible relationship and they broke the relationship because they decided to do something other than what he called them to do. And as a result, the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of, the, of life and eat and live forever. He's basically saying, I gotta do something because now I don't want him having access, he and she having access to the tree of life in their fallen state and living for eternity in a fallen state. So he's gonna ban them from that place, from that dwelling place. It's a penalty. It's because they have chosen to disobey him. So therefore the Lord God sent them out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You gotta notice that what is he protecting them from? eating of the tree of life, because if they eat of the tree of life, they will live forever in a fallen state. And God doesn't want that to happen. So he bans them. And what you see is these patterns of, even in Eden, there was a holy place, Eden. There was a most holy place, the garden, where they communed with God. And you see this pattern 
that's gonna be replicated when we get to the tabernacle in chapters 35 through 40 of Exodus. See, they get banned. And this starts a trend. They get banned from God's presence. They're kicked out, why? Because of sin, because they chose to do what they wanted to do rather than doing what God had called them to do as his priests, as his representatives. You see this pattern repeated all throughout the Old Testament where God chooses someone, assigns them a duty, and then for whatever reason, they choose to disobey that, that duty, that responsibility. But it began here. And as a result, death enters the scene. And then you see humanity from Genesis chapter three on moving east. It's, it's a figurative way of saying they're moving away from God. They're vacating the premises. They're leaving the Holy of Holies. They're leaving the holy place and they're moving outside and away from God. And God stationed that what? That those two cherubim and that flaming sword to keep them from ever entering back in. They were barred from his presence. And then you see the moral decline start to happen as you move through the book of Genesis. If you were part of the book of Genesis, this is all review, but I think it's important that we look at it so that we fully understand what's happening in chapter 40 specifically of the book of Exodus. Back in chapter six of Genesis, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. They were obedient in the sense that they were fruitful and they multiplied and they made more of their kind, they just made the wrong kind. They made the sinful kind, the, the disobedient kind, and they filled the earth. And so what does God do? He decides to wipe them out. And that's harsh, that's, that's hard for us to read that story, but yet it's again, it's the same God of Sinai, the God of judgment, the God of holiness, the God of righteousness that has to deal with sin, the God who destroyed 3,000 of those people who worshiped the calf and then the residual people who participated in the orgy, it's the same God, right? It's a God who is holy and he's also gracious. He's a God of redemption, but he's also a God who punishes sin. And so what happens? He purges mankind off the face of the earth, but he starts over with a guy named Noah. Remember, we saw that Noah was a righteous man. He, he walked with God. He had a relationship with God. He's the last man standing, and he's the only one who has a relationship with God Almighty at this point in the, the story of humanity. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So after they go through the flood, after they live because of his command to create the ark, they get the same mandate. Start over. Let's let's. Let's do this thing over again. We're gonna start with you, Noah, your three sons, their wives, and we're gonna repopulate the earth. And they do it to the point that it starts the problem all over again. And you see his descendants, Noah's descendants, filling the earth with what? More of their kind. What kind? The fallen kind, the broken kind, the kind that is not necessarily moving west back to Eden, but they're moving east away from Eden, away from God. And they increase in number, they increase in independence. And as you work your way through the book, they start making it all about them once again. It's the same pattern, same story over and over again. You get to a place called Babel and it says, and then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What are they basically saying? God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they go, no. We don't wanna do that. We wanna stay right here and build a monument to ourselves 
basically an idol to ourselves, our own ingenuity, and we want to worship ourselves. And God's not going to have any of it. So God says, let us go down, confuse their language so that they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So God is going to get his will done one way or the other. God's will always gets done, whether we like it or not. That's why we shouldn't really worry about what's going on in the world. I don't like it. I pray that it would improve, but... I don't need to worry about it because God's will is going to be done in spite of what anybody else thinks about it. So what does he do? Well, God decides to make a nation. And this is not like a knee-jerk reaction. You know, man, I got to do something. I got to fix this problem. God's, God's had this plan all along, but God steps into it because God's never done. God's always working his plan. God always has something ready to do because he's had that plan ready since before the foundation of the world. And so what does he do? He plans a nation, a people, and he begins again with one guy. It's just interesting who he chooses. He chooses a guy named Abram, who happens to be from where? Ur, which is real near Babylon, which is real, really near where Babel was. And he's a Chaldean. He's not a Jew. The Jews don't exist yet. He's not a Yahweh worshiper. He's an idolater. And yet God chooses him and says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God's gonna do something great. Through who? A pagan, a non-Israelite, because the Israelites don't exist yet. They, they aren't a nation. And, and this is what God decides to do in order that he might bless the nations. Later on in chapter 12, he says, I will bless those who bless you, Abram, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He restates that same promise. Now we know because we've studied this book, it, this guy's old, he's got a barren wife and she's old and they don't have any children and that's gonna be a problem for years. And they're gonna try to help God out, but God doesn't need their help. God has a plan. God knows what he's doing. God's going to work this plan to perfection. And at one point in chapter 30, 13, he says, lift up your eyes and look for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. This is at a point when he still doesn't have a son and heir. And God goes, look around. This land is all going to be yours and I'm going to fill it to the brim with what? your offspring. This is God revealing his plan to Abram, what he's going to do. And the reason I want to go back and look at this, guys, is because sometimes we, we cherry pick books out of the Bible and we study them and we look at them out of their context. And you got to remember, Exodus is part of the context of five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you can't just study Exodus and not look at Genesis or it makes no sense. You don't understand why these people are responding the way they do. You don't understand what God is doing. And you most certainly don't understand why in the world did he give these rebellious people a tabernacle? Why did he allow them to build a tabernacle in which he would live in the midst of all their sinfulness? But yet you gotta go back to Genesis. Because one of the things you're gonna see, I hope this morning is that from day one, God's greatest desire has been to live among us. 
Now, I, I think I know a lot about God. I don't think I have God figured out. And if I ever claim to, just shoot me. Um, but here, I don't understand that about God. Why does God want to live with me? Why does God want to live with you? Why would God want to come dwell with any of us? And yet that's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the book of Exodus. That's the story of the book of Genesis. And later on in chapter 15, he's going to reiterate his promise. He goes, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they'll be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He doesn't tell them where, but literally centuries before they end up in Egypt, he tells them, he tells Abram, this is what's going to happen. Your people, your descendants, of which he doesn't have any at the moment, are going to be <laughs> afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. So you see this, this incredible plan that God's ha God has that doesn't make a whole lot of sense at this point, right? Now, we're on this side of the cross and we have the ability to look back and we know how the story ends. We've seen the movie. They haven't seen the movie. Abram doesn't know about any of this stuff. He doesn't understand what God is doing. But this brings us all the way to Sinai, what we've been studying now for weeks. God has the people who he rescued out of Egypt, where? At Mount Sinai, exactly where he first met Moses and said, I'm gonna call you, I'm gonna send you, you're gonna come back with those people and you're gonna be here. And God has kept his word to the last iota. He, he's done exactly what he said. They are a great nation, right? It says they marched out in martial array. There were so many of them, 1.5 to 2 million of them. There were a whole bunch of people and they started with 70. God has kept his word. They're free, completely free. The only thing they're not free from is their propensity to sin. They're really good at that. They're, they're still captive to sin, but they are free. And he's given them all the promises that he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. It's all theirs. And now they have his presence. See, this, this is the thing is that God is coming once again to dwell in their midst. How did he do it? Here, at least at this point in the story, up until chapter, what, 38, it's on Mount Sinai. He's come down in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning, and it's been pretty scary. But it's, again, it's a picture of Eden. It's a picture of a holy place. You got to remember that God came down in that cloud on the top of that mountain, and only one man got to go into his presence, and that's Moses. Joshua didn't get, get to go up there. The 70 elders didn't get to go into the cloud. They were somewhere below. They got to go into kind of the, the holy place, but they couldn't go into the holy of holies. Only Moses could go there. And, and so you have this picture, this pattern that's established. And what is true of Mount Sinai is going to be true of the tabernacle, as we'll see in just a second. It says that on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the whole mountain trembled greatly and it scared the people to death. But this is God coming to earth. The God of glory, the God who created the universe is once again coming to earth in a form which they can see and he's dwelling in their midst. And we've spent time talking about they didn't quite like what was dwelling in their midst. 
They didn't like that form of Yahweh. They, they weren't real happy that that God wanted to come. And now he said, not only am I going to come there, but I'm going to come right smack dab in the middle of your camp. And they're like, I don't know if I want that. I don't know if I want that God. So they made that new God, that, that new version of Yahweh that looked like the gods they were used to worshiping, a calf. But you can't miss the fact that God is coming to dwell in their midst. We saw it in Eden. Now we're seeing it in Sinai, that God wants to come down. And again, I don't understand that part of God. Why would he ever want to come down? You see the news. You see what's going on in this world. Why would God ever want to dwell on this planet with anybody, including us? I'm not pristine. I don't think you are either. And yet God wants to dwell with us. See, at this point in the story, and this is significant because it apply, it's going to help us understand the tabernacle. He's still distant, right? He's, he's up there. I can't just walk into his presence. He's unapproachable. As a matter of fact, he said, if you even come near the base of the mountain and you cross the boundary that has been established and you touch the mountain, I will literally kill you. So he's not exactly approachable, which makes him totally inaccessible and also totally transcendent. He's above them. He is greater than them. That's why they don't like him because they look up there and they see the smoke, the fire, the thunder, the lightning. And that is a God that I can't relate to. And yet what they don't seem to understand is, and yet that God has come to dwell among you, but it frightens them. It scares them. And you throw on top of that, all the demands, right? The law, the Decalogue, the covenant requirements, what did he tell them in chapter 19? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. It's a conditional statement. If you will, then. If you want to be my treasured possession among all peoples, and if you want to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, you have to keep my commands. What's interesting about this, guys, is the idea that God, at one point, at this point in the story, seems to indicate that all the Israelites are to be priests. And yet we know that they don't all end up as priests. Only the Levites become the priestly caste. See, something happened, and we studied it last week and the week before. They sinned. They made the golden calf. They decided to worship a false version of God. And yet God is still there. God hasn't vacated the premises. God hasn't bailed on them. And he says to them, speak to the people of Israel that they may make for me a contribution and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. See, that, that should blow us away that with everything we've read in the story, everything we've read about the people of Israel, that God still wants to dwell with them. I mean, I say this all the time, but if I were God, I'd just wipe them out. You've done it before. Why not do it again? You, you wiped out the whole planet and started over with Noah. Look where it got you, God. They're no better. You started it over with Abram and you literally created a nation out of one man who is old and he's got a barren wife and look where it got you. And you still want to dwell in their midst. That blows me away. Why would God want to dwell with us? I need you to think about that. As we wrap up this, this whole book, guys, you've got to wrestle with our God is a persistent God. And he, he pursues you relentlessly because he wants to dwell in you. 
with you. He wants fellowship with you. He wants a relationship with you. That is the desire of our God's heart. The world doesn't know it. The world doesn't even want it. But here we are, chosen of God, the children of God. We are now a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we, I don't think, have it sunk into our heads yet that God desperately wants a relationship with us. And he pursues us without fail over and over and over again. That's why he had come down. That's why he came down to Eden. That's why he came down to Mount Sinai in order that he might have a relationship. And now he says, now I'm gonna come smack dab into the valley and I'm gonna possess, I'm gonna come into that tabernacle. I'm gonna dwell there among you. I want to be among you. I don't wanna be above you. And I'm not saying God's still not transcendent. He is, but it's all about relationship. He wants community, but here's the deal. In order for that to happen, his glory demands holiness. See, that's the part we lose sight of sometimes. You know, we, we relish the idea that we're saved, our sins are forgiven, and any sin I commit, I get forgiven. It's already forgiven. My ticket's stamped, I know where I'm going, my destiny's set, my future's secure, but I forget about he still demands holiness. And he expects holiness of you and of me. And in order for him to dwell in their presence and for them to enjoy his presence, they've got to make preparations, right? They got to have a place prepared for the glory of God. They got to create this tabernacle that he's commanded them to make. He says, erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. This is probably something that some of you have never noticed before that um, when he gives Moses the plans, the verbal plans for this is the tabernacle and chapter 25 to 30 and then 35 to 39 are basically repetitions. They're the same thing said over and over again about all the details of the tabernacle. So there's that, but God also gives him a vision of the tabernacle. When he goes up into that cloud and he spends 40 days and 40 nights with God, God shows him exactly what it's supposed to look like. It's like he gave him not just a blueprint, not just the detail of all the different things, but he let him see exactly what it was supposed to look like. He leaves nothing to chance. See, Moses can go, well, I I guarantee if I gave the description of the building of the tabernacle to 10 different guys in this room and you built it, none of them would look the same. They would all be a different version of the same thing. That's why you can go online and see all these different illustrations of what the tabernacle tabernacle looked like and they're all different. Because all we can see and read are the descriptions, but he got to see the finished model, what it should look like. So he had detailed plans and he had a schematic a literal architectural rendering. This is what it's gonna look like. If you show me the blueprint to a house, I think I can get it. I'm a right brain creative type. But you show me a detailed elevation, that makes a whole lot more sense to me. That's exactly what happens. And it's based on a heavenly model. This is, this is what escapes us when we read this, this portion of the book of Exodus is that Moses got to see the tabernacle in heaven. And that's what the tabernacle on earth was modeled after. See, Eden was a model of heaven. 
Sinai is a model of heaven. This tabernacle is a model of heaven. And you may go, well, that's not very impressive. It's just a tent with a fence around it. Yeah, but it's filled with gold, it's filled with silver, it's filled with bronze, it's filled with jewels, it's filled with tapestries. It's, it is immaculate. It is a really, really nice tent. Now, can it compare to whatever is up there in heaven? No, because it's just a model. It's a shadow of that, but it is a model that is meant to represent what's in heaven, which brings us to Hebrews, which is why we're going to study Hebrews. And this will give you a glimpse of what the author of Hebrews tells us about these things. He says, we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of, of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Stop there. Where is Jesus Christ? He is in heaven in that holy tabernacle. Heavenly tabernacle. There is some structure, some place in heaven where he exists with God Almighty in a building made without human hands. But then he goes on and he says, back down on earth during the days of Moses, there were priests who offer the gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that's only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. So what is the author of Hebrews telling us? He's telling us that back during the days of Moses, when he got the plans for the tabernacle, built the tabernacle in chapters 39 through 40, he was building a replica of something in heaven where Jesus Christ sits with God the Father. See, that gives it a whole new meaning, guys, that, that God has instructed him to make a replica and then he's going to leave glory and come and dwell there. Now, God cannot be relegated to one place at one point in time because he's not a human being. He's a supernatural being. He's a spirit being. He can be anywhere he wants to be all at one time. And yet, in some form or fashion, he is going to take up residence in this place, this tabernacle. It says, when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I've shown you here in the mountain. In other words, don't play fast and loose. Don't get creative. Don't add a room here and add a room there. Don't make something bigger or smaller. Wouldn't it have been easy for Moses to go, you know, this, is, this thing's only 15 feet by 45. That, Lord, you deserve more. And God's going, no, no. You build it exactly to the dimensions, to the size, to the scale, to everything I tell you, build it according to my plan, not your plan. Because it's a replica. It's a model of something that I have planned for you. See, here's, here's what, if you look at that chart on the back of your handout, what I want you to see is every one of these things, Eden, Sinai, the tabernacle, and then ultimately you, if you're a Christian, are a little bit of heaven on earth. Now that ought to scare you a little bit, right? Because I look around the room and I go, really? A, a little bit of heaven on earth? Uh, I can see the other, you know, a little bit of hell on earth, but no, I am a little bit of heaven on earth. I am really a model of that heavenly tabernacle. Why? Because God dwells in me. I have a holy place. I have a most holy place. I, I have been transformed by God. I, I have been made pure and righteous, just like the tabernacle. You realize the tabernacle was gorgeous, but it didn't become holy until God came to dwell in it and he's the one who made it holy. 
Without God, you are not holy. You are not righteous. You are sinful. You are fallen. And yet he comes and his very presence transforms you just like it did the tabernacle. See, all of this explains all those chapters, you know, 35 through 39, and all those descriptions of all the opulence of this thing called the tabernacle. It explains all the details. Why would God go through so much detail in describing how everything has to be made? And then it begs the question, is this house really built for him? Is this really God's house? Is that what this is all about? See, here's what's interesting. Isaiah 66.1 tells us that heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? See, what God wanted Isaiah to know and what God ultimately wants Moses and all the people of Israel to know, and ultimately he's gonna want David to know is that you can't contain me in a building. I don't really need you to build me a place to live. This is for you, not me. I mean, I got all heaven. I got wherever heaven is and whatever it looks like, I guarantee it's better than that tabernacle. He goes, I don't really need it. And isn't it interesting that David would later want to build God a a temple, a tabernacle. It says, David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, his son, who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. So this building is not about God needs a place to live. He's he's homeless. Let's, Let's build God a place where he can live. No, it's God creating a place worthy of his presence so that he can dwell in their midst. It's God doing what only God could do, but not for his benefit, for theirs. And again, think about that. I did nothing to prepare my heart for God. I did nothing. There's nothing I could have done to make this a, a proper dwelling place for God. God made it a proper dwelling place when he came in. And that's what's going on here. All of this, guys, is a, it's, it's just an earthly glimpse of the glory of God that they were getting to see every day. It's for them. It's for the Israelites, where God will reveal his glory, his splendor, his greatness, his magnitude, his holiness over and over again. Everything about this building points to God's holiness. And here's the cool thing. It made God accessible. They could literally enter that courtyard. There were priests who could enter the Holy of Holies. And then... There's a high priest who could once a year go into the most holy place. It's, it's God making himself accessible, totally accessible. Could anybody and their dog just walk right into the most holy place? No, only the high priest under certain conditions one time a year. But it was a daily reminder that God is living in our midst. God is with us. God has come to dwell with us. I love what Moses later says in Deuteronomy, for what great nation has a God as near to them as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on him. See, the cool thing about the tabernacle was it's not just a place where God dwelled, it's where they could go and talk to God, hear from God, offer sacrifices to God, get forgiveness from God. And he goes, does any other nation have a God like that? And he answers, no. He goes on, and what great nation has decrees and regulations as righteous and fair as this body of instructions that I'm giving you today? There is no other nation on earth that has a God like this God and who has a relationship with their God like we have with our God. It's totally unique. It's, it's 
out of this world. It's extraordinary. And everything about this tabernacle, this tent, was made, made to reveal his glory. Just go back and read those chapters. Look at the gold, the silver, the bronze, the fine linen, the crafted leather. Everything about it was made to point to God's glory. I guarantee nobody else had a tent like this. It's still a tent, but it's like no other tent they'd ever seen. And for them, this was unbelievable. It was gorgeous. And it was all crafted by two men who were divinely ordained and gifted by God so that it would be built according to his standards. So just, just look at this, guys. This is the tabernacle. This is the kind of the schematic. You've got the courtyard. It's surrounded by a fence. The people could come in there, but they couldn't go into the, the holy place. Only the priests could enter into there, only after they were cleansed. And only the high priest, Aaron, could go into the most holy place one time a year. But this is the place that he created. And then he put these elements, these pieces of furniture, basically. And it begins with the bronze altar. It's the place where they would come and offer burnt offerings in order that they might be cleansed and forgiven of their sins. There's the bronze basin where after the priests offered all those animals and were covered with blood, they would cleanse themselves ceremonially so that they could then go in to the holy place. And in the holy place, there's this place called the table of showbread. It's this small little table with 12 loaves of basically unleavened bread, the 12 tribes of Israel, but it represents the, God, the, the bread of God's presence. See, all of this is symbolic. All of it is pointing to God. And there's this interesting thing called the golden lampstand. And you may have never noticed this, but in the description, it's described to be a tree. And it's sometimes referred to as the lampstand of life, which should remind us of what? Eden. And there was a tree there, the tree of life. And it should remind us of Jesus Christ, who's the light of life. He's the one who gives us life. And then you move to the altar of incense where they would offer up incense, a special brand of incense that was lifted up to God and it was to illustrate the prayers of the saints. And then ultimately, past that veil, which was covered with cherubim, they went, the priest would go in one time a year and he would pray to God. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. See, all of this is a picture of what God is doing for them and what God has done for us. If you follow the pattern, if you just follow what God has created, it starts at the altar where they got atonement for sin, the basin where they receive purification from sin, the lampstand, which is light, it, it illuminates, they get sanctified. See, we're in the process of sanctification. The altar of incense where not only do we get to make intercession for one another, but we're told that Jesus Christ is making intercession for us right now on a daily basis before God the Father. And then you have the bread, which represents communion and the justification that is offered at that mercy seat where God forgives us of all our sins. That's what this is all about. And again, Hebrews says, when these things were all in place, all these pieces of furniture inside that tent the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. He goes on. And he, the high priest, always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people that they committed in ignorance. In other words, they didn't know they were committing sin. They weren't done on purpose, but just by living life. And because we're sinful creatures, we sin. And so he would offer blood. 
And by these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. Here's what you need to understand. The tabernacle was temporary. Now they would worship that in that tabernacle for almost 500 years. It got replaced with the temple. And there were several versions of the temple, but it was temporary. And there is no temple right now, right? The Jews have no temple in which to worship God, in which to get forgiveness of sin, to offer sacrifices. It was all meant to be temporary. He says, it's an illustration pointing to the present time for the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of people who bring them. See, it's a picture of something greater to come. That's what the book of Hebrews is gonna be all about. Something greater has happened. What, who? Jesus Christ. Somebody has fulfilled all the foreshadowings of Sinai, of the tabernacle, of the temple. He says, Christ has now become the high priest over the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands is not, and is not part of the created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption. So if you look at this chart and you go from left to right, this is the pattern that God has established and it ends, at least at this point, with you and me. He came to Eden, they rebelled. He came to Sinai, they rebelled. He came to the tabernacle. And it's interesting, if you go to Leviticus chapter 10, after they dedicate the tabernacle, they offer all the sacrifices, the smoke and the fire come down and consume all those sacrifices. The very next chapter, Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, the high priest, go in and offer strange fire upon the altar of God. And God kills them on the spot. Once again, God has to step in. Once again, sinful men tend to do what sinful men do. But here's the amazing thing. Even in spite of that, Jesus Christ came to earth. God, the son took on human flesh and came to dwell in human hearts. That's what this is all about. That's what it's all pointing to. That's where we are. And here's the most exciting thing about this whole picture. And I told you, we're gonna start in Genesis, we're gonna end in Revelation. Listen to what it says in chapter 22, the very last chapter of the book of Revelation. It says, then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. This is the new Jerusalem. This is the culmination of all the scriptures of all eternity, flowing through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Here we go again. Genesis chapters one and two, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun for the Lord God will reign, will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. End of the story, God wants to dwell with you. God's wanted to dwell with man from the very beginning. And it's gonna take God Almighty to take us from Genesis chapter three, the Garden of Eden, the fall of mankind, 
all the way to Revelation chapter 22, where he will rectify and bring everything to closure. And that's how the story ends. That's why the tabernacle is so significant. That's why the book of Exodus is so important for us to read and study and think about. So here's what I want you to talk about around your tables this morning. In light of everything we just covered, and I know it's a lot, but ever since Eden, God has desired to dwell among men. Now he lives in you. How does that thought strike you? I hope it blows you away. I hope you go, man, I I can't even get my head around that. But I need you to wrestle with God, the God of the universe, in spite of everything humanity has done, everything you and I have done has chosen to dwell in you. Why and how does that impact you? Secondly, since God has made our earthly bodies his tabernacle, in what ways does he reveal to reveal his glory through you? How does God show his glory through your life? Because guess what? That's why you exist, to reveal his glory to the nations. Third, how does the Revelation 22, one through five passage bring closure to the events of Eden and bring us hope for today? How does those, do those verses give me courage and hope even in the midst of the day in which we live? Father, I thank you for this uh, incredible book. I, I thank you that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, led Moses to pen these words so that we might read them. But I thank you that you gave other men the words to write so that we could see your plan in its completeness from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Lord, we are your tabernacle. You live in us. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't always even fathom it, but it's true. And I thank you for that. And I pray that you would show me how that I can live my life in such a way that it will bring you glory because you live in me. You make me righteous. You make me holy. Help me to live like it. Help me to embrace it, believe it, and then live in such a way that it reflects that truth to all those around me. Thank you for these guys. Thank you for their faithfulness over the last 11 weeks. And would you, in this last conversation around their tables, would you show up in might and power and glory. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.